Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The AA has confirmed what any of us on a forecourt will already know. The price of fuel is skyrocketing. People will really suffer. This Christmas will be a lean and mean Christmas. Calls for walk-in PCR testing as the chief medical officer says cheaper antigen tests make sense. So the intention is to make sure, from my point of view, that these tests are being used as properly as they can by the population. And of course, for people using them properly, anything that can then ease the financial burden that might go with that uh, makes sense. And is it time we took religion out of sex education? A bill going in front of the doll tomorrow says just that. We want to hear your thoughts on these stories tonight. You can get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. put petrol or diesel into your car in the last few months and the next 30 seconds will in no way surprise you. The AA has released figures showing just how much prices have skyrocketed in the last year. This was 12 months ago. Petrol was 125.7 and diesel was just over 117 cent a litre. Fast forward to this month and petrol is now 172.6 cent a litre. A 27% rise. Diesel is just over 163 cent, up 28%. The AA says the prices are significantly impacting everyone, but especially lower income families in rural areas. Well, here's what some motorists at the pump had to say to our reporter, Paul Quinn. It's pretty severe here today. It's uh, 163. I've never seen it go uh, near the 100, uh, which is, uh, there you go, 99.72, which is a new record. Uh, it's pretty shocking, all right. Uh, inflation, we're starting to really feel a pinch of inflation, um, certainly at the pumps here today. And what would you have normally been putting into this? So uh, it was literally down to nothing there in the um, in the dial. Uh, 70 would be top whack, uh, would be normally in the 60s. But this is this is definitely a new record here today. What did you say? Uh, 99.72, so nearly broke the 100. I put in 50 there a couple of weeks ago, and it was only half full. Whereas that would have brought it to maybe three quarters. So that's when I noticed. So I find it very different because I'm self-employed. So, I mean, I have two vans on the road and my own diesel van. And it's just, I noticed in the last, particularly in the last month, it's going up and up and up. And I think it's ridiculous. Of, what kind of prices, like, uh, you know, compared to what it was to fill a, fill a tank? Oh, Jesus, I noticed nearly, tw- nearly up to 15 euros a fill since last year, you know, definitely. How do you sustain that? You don't sustain it, you have to kind of just suck it up and there's no choice. Well, it's about 90 hours to fill my van at the moment, whereas before it used to be about 70. So it's just, the price, it's a price increase all across the board with everything. I have to use my car, but the price is like ridiculous and it's very hard to survive. 
in these places. And like as far as I see, the price keep going. It's not slowing down. Three months ago, I was buying diesel at 130. Now I'm buying it at 160. So that's probably 20%, one-fifth price has gone up. Um, so to fill up now, I've, I was filled up at, at 60, 55, now it's 70, 75. Obviously what will have to be, uh, there has to be an intervention in trying to remove some of the VAT on fuel. Otherwise, um, people will really suffer. This Christmas will be a lean and mean Christmas. Well, joining me now to discuss this is motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert and independent TD Richard O'Donoghue. Gerald, I want to start with you on this. You know, it will come as no surprise to people who've been filling up recently, but those numbers, record highs. Mm. Did we ever think we'd get to this kind of figure when, when people are just trying to fill their cars to get from A to B? No, absolutely not. And what was interesting in that uh, VT was people saying how it was different even a month ago. And the AA are saying that petrol is up 27% and diesel is up 28%. Now, on the 1st of October, the first week in October, it was up 25% on the year before. So even in that short time, six weeks, we can see a substantial increase. Unfortunately, Claire, there is no end in sight. This is directly related at the moment to a lack of supply of oil. There's no plans to increase the supply. So until that happens, and the oil refineries won't be at pre-pandemic, um, production levels until it's estimated till the end of next year or maybe 2023. So there is no good news for the motorist at the moment. Yeah, is it going to be that long? Because I, I've heard differing reports that actually post pan or in the immediate aftermath with that great supply uh, demand issue that, 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 that the cost of crude oil shot up. But now that it's stabilising a bit and it's going to kind of under $80 a barrel, we're not seeing it yet though at the pump, are we? No, and the problem is, you see, OPEC, who really control the supply, I mean, they, they operate as a cartel, have no real intentions of, of increasing the supply to a sufficient level. They are increasing supply month in month, month by month, but the problem is you'd need to substantially increase it to get back to pre-pandemic levels. As I said, remember, if you cast your mind back to May 2020, oil went, it dropped to an 18-year low. So, you know... They scaled back all of the production of crude oil and everything, so they cannot get back to that production. So unless supply substantially increases, we just simply won't see an increase, unless, as what was mentioned there as well, remember, 60% of what we pay at the pumps is actually government tax. Yeah, well, that, that's, a, that's a fair point to be made as well. In terms of um, the price discrepancies and different prices, because we, we've always been told when it comes to petrol like, and, uh, and diesel, it's worth shopping around to see if mm. there's better prices elsewhere. Are we seeing much variation, though, depending on where you go, or is it really across the board? Um, prices are high no matter where you go, but there is, very, there is variance definitely. Having said that, though, you have to be careful, Claire. It doesn't make sense to shop around too much for fuel. If you think about it, you know, you're consuming fuel to get there. So you really have to shop within your locality. Um, and, uh, you know, retailers tend to mark each other. So there, there is some savings to be made. A cent or two can make a huge difference on, you know, filling your tank. But at the same time, um, don't expect too much variance. OK, I just want to show you some um, footage now of what happened today, um, how one TD got into work in Leinster House. This is Richard O'Donoghue uh, causing quite a scene when he showed up to work in his, in his lorry. Um, Richard joins us now in studio. Did you get a hand parking there or, or how, how did that all play out when no, you rocked up to Leinster no, House? I was well able to park it. There was no problem. Um, there was a space for the, you, was the, there? The, we had follow procedure and we had sent in the number of the vehicle that we were coming up. I mightn't have told him it was a, going to be a truck, but I did give him the registration of the vehicle that it was coming in on. Because you wanted to cause a bit of a, a surprise. Well, they probably wouldn't have left me in if I hadn't registered, so I decided to follow protocol and they asked you to give a number of a vehicle and I gave them the number. Tell us what it was all about. 
Well, it's all about us to bring in awareness for people to show the fuel pr uh, crisis that we have at the moment. Tomorrow there is a truck uh, demonstration going on. Not only is it a truck, it's going to be cars, it's going to be vans, because it's hitting everyone in the pocket. And we have to highlight this from a rural point of view. And I've, I've been saying it all the time. It's once you leave the city boundaries, it's where the fuel poverty is coming in to play because people don't have the infrastructure to use other transport, so they have to use their cars. And that's why, if you look at it from €100 Euros worth of fuel, the government are taking €57 Euros of that in the taxes. That's why we want to highlight this. We want the government... Everyone is willing to pay, but we want the government to give a bit as well. So it will ease the burden on people okay. that have no infrastructure. How much did it cost you to drive up today? Where are you coming from exactly? I came from Limerick. Right. I brought up the truck. I brought it up in economical mode. Um, so the truck actually rise. That truck would probably take €50 Euros to bring it to Dublin without a load. And it hadn't the load on it, so it was just a tractor unit coming up. Um, normally, that, normal trucks do about 16 miles to the gallon. That's what they do. And if you're on the motorway, and as I was passing up today, how many trucks was in convoy going up to Dublin and how many trucks were coming down? Because all of our importation of food and comes into the port in Dublin. Look, people will be wondering, this is this plan for tomorrow, you mentioned it there, protests taking place on all the arterial routes into Dublin. So a slow drive of... Uh, we don't know how many hauliers are going to turn out. Yeah. And think of all those people that we vox pop there this evening who are filling up and paying the price at the pump as well. And they're all going to be caught behind all this traffic and all this gridlock that's going to be created. I just wonder about the benefit of such a protest. It's to bring the protest to Dublin because people are saying that Dublin is the capital. Well, Limerick is the capital for me because that's the people that rec elected me to represent them on a national stage. Do you and think that's everyone will, will appreciate what's going to happen tomorrow No, they morning. won't. And for everyone that loves you and needs somebody that hates you, but the message is here. The infrastructure that we are looking for, we want infrastructure in the counties. So people that are in the county can avail of the same facilities that people have but in the when city. When you're talking about infrastructure... Bus routes... Right, OK. Uh, normal, there is no bus routes in Limerick because you can't get from a town or a village to the city on a normal run. So our students trying to get to college, they can't use the bus routes. Is that what the Hollier's protest is about? The, Hall the Hollier protest is about the fuel because the rebate system only covers a certain amount of people within the haulage. It doesn't cover the person taking your slice pan to the shop. It doesn't cover your milk coming to the shop. It doesn't cover all the trucks. So we were looking for all trucks, all hauliers to, to be subsidised under fuel because if fuel is too dear and it's costing so much to get your projects to the shelves, the price at the shelf yeah. is going to go up. OK. Ger, uh, I want to bring you in here again. Something you mentioned there, and, and I know Richard feels strongly about it, the tax that we pay. It's among the highest, isn't it, in Europe for, uh, on petrol and diesel. It accounts for about 60% yes, of so, the cost of a so litre. Oil prices only actually impact 40% of what you pay. So even when fuel, com fuel or oil comes down in price, we still pay excise duty per litre. So that never changes. And there's been a host of extra um, charges that have been put on in the last 10 years. So excise is the biggest share, but there's also VAT. There's an energy charge. There's a biofuel obligation. There's a NORA levy. There is a huge amount. So it's 60% literally that we pay. Yeah, I mean, is there... I mean, the, the climate argument from government would probably be they want to... They don't want people to be driving long distances in diesel and petrol uh, in, in those cars. So the chances of those taxes coming off are pretty slim, aren't they? But you, you could say, with the prices people are paying at the pump, it's pretty high and it's, it's not sustainable for many people. 
No, it certainly isn't. It, it highlights how few um, alternatives people have to their car once you're outside of an urban area, and I think that is the issue. But in terms of the government, I mean, they've already increased carbon tax. They have a commitment to carbon tax increases over the next few years. So I don't see them. There was talk of um, them reduce or them changing the excise, but that was actually to increase it in diesel. I don't see a government that has a climate action target like they do having anything that will decrease the cost of fuel, to be honest. So I think that's not going to happen. So what can happen, I suppose, is the big question now because people are struggling. There's a lot. The cost of living is going up uh, uh, and this is where we're feeling it quite hard now. Yeah, the only thing that could happen in the short term is at the moment, as you see what's happening across Europe, there's a lockdown in Austria, there's, um, you know, similar in the Netherlands. These tend to impact on um, consumer confidence, which impacts on um, economic activity. Lockdowns obviously mean people are working from home. So demand, if demand falls, the price of oil could go down as well on that basis. But the problem is the oil market trades in dollars. The euro doesn't ever fare well during a lockdown. So the two could cancel out each other. But that's the only thing that could happen at the moment to bring the price down even slightly. That's not even optimistic not even in the no. slightest, is no. it, Richard? Really, um, I suppose the point that, that we're sort of hearing is that the government aren't likely um, to make any moves around removing taxes on the price of petrol and diesel. So what now? They have to, re they have to reduce the VAT prices on the fuel. If you look at the government uh, recently put a 2% uh, increase on fuel, which brought their own intake from 19% to 21 This is aside from the carbon tax, is it? The carbon tax was at 2% uh, that they've increased it. They have the NORA, which is 2%. You have the VAT at 23%, and then you have the excise duty coming in as well. That's what makes up the €57 Euros in every 100. Now, as I said, everyone in this country is willing to pay and have some of the burden. For the winter months, while it's so cold and there's a big, for fuel that people do not have, the, for gas, people that are relying on oil, we want the government to take less out of it, just for six months, until to give the chance for oil to come down and give people a fighting chance. If you look That's at if it, oil does come down. If course. oil does come down, but at least let people get over the winter. You can see how hard it is out there tonight with the, with the, with the low um, temperatures that are there. So people have to turn on the heating. They have to either buy coal or blocks or whatever they have to do to heat their house to keep their family warm. So we have to take some of the burden. But the government also have to take that burden as well to keep the people of Ireland safe. OK, there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to Geraldine Herbert and Richard O'Donoghue. And coming up after the break, the HSE is urged to open walk-in PCR test centres as the rollout of subsidised antigen tests hit a snag. Stay with us. COVID cases rise around the country, the strain on PCR testing centres are becoming stark. There were calls today to open up walk-in centres to alleviate that stress after the highest number of swabs was carried out so far during the pandemic. It comes as antigen tests and how to pay for them came to the fore once again today. That was a big issue when our Zara King spoke with the Chief Medical Officer Tony Houlihan earlier. Can I ask you about antigen testing? Because in the letter, obviously, you recommended that people who were engaging with indoor activities with loads of households on a regular basis would antigen test twice a week. Um, it was another measure, not the silver bullet, obviously. Um, where are we at in terms of providing subsidies for that? And would you like to see antigen tests subsidised? 
let's be clear in our primary advice for those individuals. People who are engaging in high-risk activity need to reduce the volume of that high-risk activity. And as I've said on many occasions before, if you want to reduce your risk and you are engaged in high-risk high risk activities, follow that up for a period of time with lower-risk activities. So if you're going out to the nightclub a number of times a week and going out to a pub and having people over to the house all within short space of time, that's, that's, that's behaviour that we, we all need to, to avoid. If you're one of those kinds of people, it would be sensible for you to use a twice-weekly antigen test as a way of uh, identifying if you should be staying away if you've got pre-symptomatic disease. So if your test turns out positive in that situation, you stay away. Uh, but the primary advice for individuals in that situation is to not engage in such significant volumes of high-risk activity given the levels of disease in the population as things stand. Um, so, but do you want them subsidised or not? So as things stand at the moment, we have 20% of the population, according to because we survey this on, on an ongoing basis, 20% of the population at any point in time in the previous week are using an antigen test. We're already using them at very high levels. My concern is that we're using them inappropriately. And we need to be very careful if we're going to increase the use of those that we're sure that people are going to use them properly. And as things now stand, on the basis of the evidence that we have, people are not using them appropriately. But Dr. Hulin, the feedback that I get from people directly is that they want to, they are engaging in those high-risk activities, they want to antigen test twice a week, but they financially can't afford it, or maybe they have large families. It is a money issue for some people. Oh, of course, and be very sensitive to that because people in those situations who are going to use them appropriately, we want to ensure that they're in a position to be able to use them and to have that appropriate use supported, and that's the intention. But my message is for people who are inappropriately using antigen testing. So we're seeing the majority of people who have symptoms, unfortunately, are using an antigen test, and only a minority of those people are then going on to follow the correct public health advice when that test comes back negative. They're concluding that that means they don't have the disease because they then go on to not restrict their movements and to not get a confirmatory PCR test. And as Chief Medical Officer, I have to express a concern about that. So, but here you just mentioned that it is the intention to make it affordable for people who can't afford it right now. So the intention is to make sure, from my point of view, that these tests are being used as properly as they can by the population. And of course, for people using them properly, anything that can then ease the financial burden that might go with that uh, uh, makes sense. Dr. Tony Hullin speaking to Zara King there. Well, let's speak more about this. I'm joined by Fine Gael TD Jennifer Carroll McNeil, Social Democrat co-leader Roisin Shortall and GP uh, Dr. Nina Burns. Uh, Dr. Nina Burns, I want to come to you first um, just on this situation and anyone who's awaiting a test or has a sick child or isn't feeling well themselves will know about the huge demand um, for PCR testing. You'll be very well aware of it in your surgery. How have things been in the last would you say week or two? When, have you, when did you really begin to see the impact of this surge in cases and demand? We've probably seen a surge in phone calls with people who have symptoms going back several weeks at this stage. So it's not news to us that the cases are up. Um, I think I'm hoping that maybe the increased demand for PCR testing, part of that might be that people who otherwise were using antigens are now getting the message and going for PCR testing. So it may be that we have a similar amount of symptoms, people are getting the proper test. So I think that's important. Um, I get it's frustrating for people that, you know, we did have same day access to PCR tests not that long ago, and now it's 24, if not 48 hours. But I think the really important message to say is that if you are symptomatic or if someone in your house is symptomatic, it's not kind of stay home I get a PCR test, it's stay home till you're 48 hours better. So even if you get a PCR test the same day, even if it's negative 24 hours later, even with other viruses, it's extremely mm. unlikely that you're going to be perfectly well at that stage anyway. Would you say that um, if someone has a child with a sniffle, like, and there are so many you know, little things going around this winter, as we know? 
Yeah, this, con this conversation about the sniffle comes up. You know, we've had lots of conversations about what's a sniffle and what's a virus. Um, we're seeing entire households struck down by viruses and they're often testing negative for COVID. But my message to those households often is, if everybody in your house has come down with the same virus, even if it's not COVID, clearly that virus is very contagious. So it's very important that you're at home anyway. And um, so, you know, I would like anyone who has symptoms to get their child or themselves tested. But I think the timeline to the PCR test, you know, we, we're doing the best we can. We are doing a lot of tests in Ireland. And we have to remember, it's not just access to the appointment. It's the lab scientists behind that who has to analyze that test. And they are working flat mm -hmm. out. So unfortunately, we do have to be patient. And I do understand the frustration out there. But I think the most important message is that if you have symptoms, stay home. And it's not to stay home till you get a PCR test. It's stay home till you're well. OK. Um Jennifer, we know that there is huge demand out there. Um, you know, the HSE were saying 26,000 appointments were offered in test centres yesterday. That was a record number of appointments during the pandemic. But just looking tonight about where there are tests available, should you be worried or have symptoms or need to get tested for various reasons, 22 counties have not a single test place available. So the only, only counties where I just checked before coming on air, there's one place available in Limerick, it's probably gone now, um, Mayo, Roscommon and Donegal, they were kind of faring okay, Donegal with the most amount of testing places. But 22 counties where you can't get a single PCR test to be tried now. That's right, and that is reflective of the level of demand, which is reflective of how transmissible and how, how much the virus is transmitting in the community at the moment. Um, you know, we have had, I think, 207,000 tests done in the last week, with, as you say, 26,000 yesterday. So the tests are happening, they're being done, but demand is such that, um, you, you know, that, that, that there, there, there is a wait. As you say, the advice is to stay home if you're symptomatic in any event pending a test, and indeed, you know, while you're unwell. But the government is trying to increase the number of tests. There's new test centres of opening now at Dublin Airport, Cork Airport. There was 500 tests there done last week. They've brought that up to 1,200. So they're using the private sector now to supplement, as you say, already record numbers of tests being done during the pandemic. And what about opening walk-in test centres? Because we had them um, during the height of the pandemic and when the testing and tracing really you, yeah. you know, came in and the demand was there. We even had them in the summer time. Um, we don't have them now and we're in the winter surge. Look, I would, I would take the HSE advice from this and, 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 and the, and the and NEFID advice because I do remember them saying at an earlier stage, as people are in more enclosed environments, particularly in winter, one of the things that they hadn't wanted happening at one stage was a lot of symptomatic people turning up, possibly with different viruses, to the same place for walk-in testing, that they were able to manage it based better on an appointment-based service. But look, that's for them to confirm, them to give the advice. What I'm saying is that we are trying to roll out additional capacity that reflects how much, how much demand there is, which in itself reflects how much virus is transmitting in the community at the moment. And we need to take that really seriously. And as Tony Holland says, you know, a big part of that is in addition to testing, in addition to the vaccinations, is how we mitigate our own behaviour to try to reduce transmission. And just one thing, if we, if we do get more places available, say, to test, is the capacity there then to do those tests in a timely fashion if the, if the demand is there? Or could you see people waiting days in order to get results? At every stage, we've been increasing capacity in relation to testing. Do you remember we were trying to get to a target of 20,000 tests a day at one point? And it, you're right, you have to have the testers, you have to have the lab and everything else behind it. We're now doing 26. It is, I mean, I, I can't say that, you know, we can increase it on Monday. It's for the HSE to develop and develop that. But what there is a commitment from government is to try to increase it as much as possible. But we also need to take the steps to reduce 
transmission to try to decrease pressure on every part of the health service, including that, but also to stop people getting the virus as much as possible. Yeah, uh, People would say, look, the fact that there isn't a test available means people are really conscious and they want to do the right thing. The messaging is out there. We've heard it from um, Tony Houlihan saying, you know, antigen tests are all very well, but if you have symptoms, get a PCR test, Roisin. People are trying to do what's best. Oh, absolutely. And the problem at the moment is the capacity is completely inadequate for the demand that's there. And I mean, that's absolutely wrong for advising people to do the right thing to go and have a test when they have symptoms. Well, then the least that we can expect is that there will be adequate capacity there. Now, I've been tracking this for the last week and I've been looking at, you know, the, the website on a daily basis and really, especially in the Dublin area, after eight o'clock in the morning, it's impossible to book a test anywhere. And like, it's not just a matter of them saying you won't get one tomorrow or the next day. You cannot book a test because the way the system works, you can't book a test more than two days ahead. Mm. But for the, the following two days, any day that I checked last week, you cannot get a test anywhere if you go on the website after eight o'clock in the morning. And it emerged then in the last few days that the tests all load up on the website after midnight. So you can see that there are several hundred available after midnight, but by eight o'clock in the morning, they're gone in the main. Yeah. So today, like, you know, this morning at about 10 o'clock, I checked and no test centre. I think there's 11 in Dublin, none in Dublin or none in any of the surrounding counties had any availability for the next two days. So what do people do in those circumstances where they suspect and, you know, seriously suspect that they have COVID? What do they do? Like they wait and go on again tomorrow, nothing again tomorrow. And they can go for several days like that. And in the meantime, they're in a situation where they don't know what they should be doing. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that the fact that there, is, there isn't sufficient capacity means that the numbers and the very high numbers that we're hearing are actually an under-reporting of the real, uh, the real volume of numbers yeah, it's at the moment. And really the HSE have to move very quickly to improve capacity. Here. Yeah, it is part of the problem. I mean, this idea of sticking around and staying up till after midnight to see, can you get a test? It's not, it's not. It means the system isn't really working sufficiently, is it, Nina? No, but I, I think the important thing to say, you know, everyone's talking about increasing capacity. I, I, like we need to remember, increasing capacity means having people to provide the testing and run the lab science, the lab scientists to do it. So it brings us back really to what the biggest problem in our health services is, is staffing and recruitment. And so, you know, you can, you can put all the slots you want, but if you don't have the healthcare workers to do them and you don't have the lab scientists to run the tests and you don't have the people to report them back, or you don't have the GPs to take the calls to do the referrals, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. So yeah. we, we have to come like back. This isn't just about putting slots in there. This is about having the proper health service properly funded and properly staffed, which is our biggest problem. Yeah, I mean, that's the bottom line, really. I mean, we do have this record number of tests, but we, we simply don't have the manpower to cope with what we knew was going to be a surge this winter. Well, I, you know, yes, I, I, I do take that point. And I think as well, the other thing about managing so the tests and people staying... I know it's, it's, it's great taking that point. But sorry, what's well, I was just going to finish what I was... I was just going to finish okay. answering it. I, I agree with what you're saying. And what I was going to say in finishing was that, you know, we are going through a surge of this virus, of this fourth wave. We do have a much more contagious virus. We have to continue to expand our healthcare system at all times. That's our critical care bed. That's our budgets. Our budget for the healthcare system this year is €22 billion, Euro, as it 
was last year. We're maintaining the extra funding. That's up from 14 billion euro in 2015. These are massive expansions of the healthcare system over time, and we need to do so more. Why have and our ICUs been why has it been described as a war zone today? Our ICU capacity has got as because of the level of transmission in the community, because of the level of hospitalisation, because of the pressure on the ICU as a result of that. But ICU capacity has grown over the last period by over 50 places, with yeah. another with 60 million euros gone in last year and this year and next year into into developing we, more more places. You, you will have to acknowledge not, the system still, is struggling. I do acknowledge that. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm simply answering and giving more detail to your listeners about the things that have been done, and I'm giving you more detail on that. I, I agree that there needs to be more capacity. Everybody agrees that, particularly in relation to ICU. But it's also the case that there have been 80, 850 acute beds but, brought into but, the hospital system this year, which is yeah. equivalent to two okay, hospitals. Roshan, but you, you did ask me about capacity, so I'm trying to answer and give you that detail. Okay, that you think that capacity no, has been increased. I'm saying that the budget has increased and the capacity has been increased yeah. and that we need to do more. Okay. Claire, there's no doubt you're right what you say. You know, we started pre-COVID from a situation where the provision of health services was completely inadequate. You know, our bed, our hospital bed numbers were, were lower than, way lower than they should be. The ICU beds were way lower. We had lots of, of uh, vacancies right across the board in the health service. So that was pre-COVID. And, and there were inadequacies there because of the underfunding and because of the way that we organise our health service and because of the refusal of the last government and this government to implement the Sláinte Care programme. And that's the difficulty. So we start from a low, very low base and then when all of this pressure came on, it, that exposed all of the weaknesses that were there. So there's a huge catch-up job to be done in the health service. But, you know, basic things like testing and the provision of boosters, you know, the government should be on top of that and that should be running smoothly now. We're, we're asking people to do the right thing and yet, you know, and we're talking about personal responsibility, but, you know, individuals can't deal with the issue of inadequate testing or inadequate uh, provision okay. of boosters. That's down to government I to de deal with. On, on boosters, you know, I think that the booster challenge is, 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 is interesting and how we're talking about boosters is interesting. We have all gone through a successful and well-organised vaccination plan even where we had vaccine insecurity, it was still managed to get it to the most vulnerable quickly. And we have had one of the best programmes across Europe. And we have all accepted that point. Okay. It is the same people running the booster programme. We don't have vaccine insecurity on this occasion in relation to the boosters. We do have the vaccines, but we do also have to acknowledge that it has to be five months after a double dose of, of, the, okay. of oh, that yeah, but, but or three months after the Janssen. So there are time constraints in it as well. But they're the same people. We don't have vaccine insecurity and we have We've had confidence in that system and I don't understand now why we have taken a completely different approach to the booster programme. There's already been half a million boosters administered okay. and we have Let, the security to do more. Let's so, just uh, talk to someone who is uh, involved with that booster programme. In fact, um, I'm joined by Skype by Dara Lachlan, General Secretary of the Irish Pharmacy Union. And Dara, I just want to come to you first on another issue that's been talked about a lot today because the government were due to make a decision around antigen testing and how much we are due to pay for them. Um, from a farm point of view, how involved have you been in, in talks um, with the HSE and the department about rolling out cheaper antigen tests? So we've had talks with the HSE over the course of the last number of weeks, but it's very difficult for us, us and the HSE, to put a plan in place to roll them out when government hasn't made decisions about what it is they want to do, the extent to which they want to subsidise them 
whether they want to subsidise them through pharmacies to a flat fee or a set discount off each set. We just don't know. Government hasn't decided what they want to do. Every Tuesday they have their cabinet meeting and we hear leaks about what they might decide and what they might talk about. And it leaves the HSE and pharmacists in discussions where we don't know what we're trying to achieve. So why is that? Why can't they make up their minds? What are you being told? It just seems like there isn't unity at cabinet level in terms of what they want to achieve and what it's going to cost. The Minister for Health was pretty clear that he wanted initially to make the tests available free of charge or heavily subsidised for people so that they could use them in line with the advice that the chief medical officer gave to government two weeks ago that anybody engaging in so-called high-risk activities, most of which simply involve leaving the house and meeting other people, should do an antigen test twice a week. And from that date to this, we've seen sales of antigen tests with people putting their hands in their own pockets have gone very, very high. We're getting a lot of inquiries and queries in pharmacies from people who genuinely want to use them properly. They want to know, how do I use this test? When do I use this test? How do I interpret the result? We're taking queries on the phone and in person. So people are trying to do the right thing. They want to use these tests properly. And at this stage, nobody knows when exactly or to what extent government will be subsidising the tests because that decision just hasn't been made. So they're coming up with a subvention scheme where essentially you'd be paid to to deliver them at a cheaper price. Is that kind of what, where you're at in terms of talks with the HSE on that, although still waiting on exactly what discount you're going to sell them at? Yes, that's it exactly. What we need to establish is that there will be a consistent supply of quality accredited tests that are approved by the European Commission and we need to establish how does the government intend to apply the subsidy and what is the extent of the subsidy and will everybody be eligible for a subsidised test and will there be a limit on the number of eligible of tests that people are eligible to receive or will it be a free for all? So none of these questions at this stage have been answered. We know that in principle there will be a plan to provide subsidised or cheaper tests. It may be through pharmacies, it may be through all retailers. We don't know that yet. It may be that the tests will be two or three euros or it may be that they'll be discounted by two or three euros. We don't know that yet. And without knowing those kind of details, we can't put a plan in place. I mean, people will be watching this saying, I mean, the whole antigen test rollout, we were promised back in September or something that, look, we are looking at this, we are taking it seriously. We had this recommendation to government that they work and they are effective. Why is it taking so long? Like, how long have you been waiting and talking to the HSE, waiting for these answers? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. We've been talking to the HSE on this 
on and off since late August, early September. It's exactly as you said, when the government started talking about how there may be a use for these tests and that they may need to put some system in place, the HSE opened discussions with us to see how it could be done. But we can't do it until the government makes a decision of what they want to achieve and what the budget for that is and how they want it done. And then we can tell them about getting it done. OK, that's a very frustrating situation, isn't it, Jennifer? I mean, there are pharmacists with supply of antigen tests. They see they're selling. People want to buy them. They're trying to do their best. You know, Tony Hoolan saying, take them twice a week if you're going out and enjoying yourself. Um, and yet we're hearing today from government work is ongoing in the area of cost, availability and supply. Why is that? Well, I'm, I'm not at cabinet table so I'm not party to those discussions yes. as, as, you, as you know but so but, you're in so, but I'm not in government I'm in I'm a TD okay. and a government party so, so I'm not in government you're so in I'm not privy party. to those discussions I'm all, but I'm not privy to those discussions and I don't know for example although I imagine conversations that they're having are how do we standardize things between pharmacists and supermarkets what's the level of somebody CD how do we make it how do, how do we balance those different things are we looking at all antigen tests some antigen tests how do we have a control around those different things and I don't know the answer to those questions because I'm not in those discussions but I imagine that is they are the conversations that are happening since and August no, seems that these you know conversations actually I raised antigen happening. testing first in October 2020 I've always believed in a role That's for it. That's even worse I mean yes, the fact yes, that it's I've been going always, on for over a year it's, now it's, and it's, still the government hasn't can't actually, come up with this discount actually, solution. It hasn't. What I said was I raised it in October 2020 because I believe in antigen testing mm. as a real contribution. There's been an analysis by government with the report by Mark Ferguson. There's been disagreement in NEF at all about it. But at the same time, what you have to remember, Claire, and I'm sure you do, is that antigen testing is already being used in food processing, in healthcare facilities, in childcare facilities, in universities, and has been for some time now. What we're talking about is how we subsidise, which I believe should happen, antigen testing to make it widely accessible so that people can use it in the way that Tony Holland is talking about it. I believe that people will use it correctly. I think that government needs to do more in terms of education, videos, um, you know, because at the same time, it is still something very different for people to be doing. So, but, but I do, like, we've, we, we know how to control our behaviour, mitigate risk, risk, you know, look at ventilation. We know how to do the things that we know work. There's no reason why we can't do antigen testing correctly as well and have that as a real contribution. I've always believed that. Oh, I know, and I think a lot of people do believe that. That's why they can't believe that at this point we don't have a plan for how to get them at a discount price so that people can avail of them readily and not pay seven euro a test, Roisin. Absolutely. The decision-making around a lot of these elements is just far too slow. We are in an emergency situation. There's a real urgency about this. And we can't you know, continue in a situation where various ministers are saying, we're looking at this, we're considering it. There needs to be clear decisions made and made swiftly and you know, like that applies to a number of different aspects of this and like the uh, this whole thing about antigen testing like last March the chief scientific officer recommended that we use them another expert group then last month said yes we should be using them widely they have been used widely in the UK and in practically every other European country now for almost a year and we're still and at a situation where the government are considering it, looking at it, you know, talking about it. It's just not good enough. You know, we can get those tests out quickly. They're far too expensive at the moment. Last week I paid 
30 euro for f a pack of five tests. Now, that's not on, and people aren't going to do them regularly as they should be okay. at that kind of price. There's a very strong argument for making them free of charge at the moment, given the scale of the problem that we have currently. And then, you know, if the government wants to look at some discount system down the road, fine, but get them out there quickly and make them affordable for people. Nina, would you agree that they are a good tool and that they should be more readily available now at a cheaper price? Yeah, no, I completely agree that antigen tests have a place in asymptomatic people. And, you know, I, I very much agree with Tony Holohan. My concern is, and certainly as a GP taking calls from people, um, my concern is they're not always being used appropriately. People are using them when they're symptomatic. When they test negative, they assume they don't have COVID and they're not staying home. So that is my concern, that if they're that freely available that people will just use them as an alternative to PCR. But do you think though, in a way, because they are so costly at the moment, maybe people are waiting till they have symptoms to use them, that if they were cheaper, that the sort of thing that you could use every day after brushing your teeth, or whatever, you could make it part of your daily routine and in that way they would be more effective. No, I, I mean, I definitely think they have a role and I think they should be subsidised. I want them to be something that people can afford. My big concern, of course, is, I mean, I think the costing this is really important. Like, how much is it going to cost to make these antigen tests available to everyone? And where are we going to take money from somewhere else in our COVID uh, service to pay for that? So, you know, if, if the money can go towards maybe better access to PCR tests, everyone getting their PCR tests the same day, you know, I think we, we do need to look at that and say, well, what benefit is there from having that out there at this cost versus the cost of some other aspect of COVID care. So I think there are, you know, uh, things to be looked at. It's not just a matter of putting the antigen test out there, but I absolutely think they have okay. a role. I think people should use them when they're asymptomatic, going to engage in activities that might be risky, such as visiting an elderly relative or going out to a group of friends or coming back from a party. Okay. And at, at the you moment, know. people are depending on YouTube videos for, and, you know, video advice from the NHS. We should be explaining to people how to use them properly yeah, and not should. be so paternalistic about it. You know, people are, are well able to I handle this Given the right advice. They're, there's, they're putting together an information campaign at the moment, so we'll wait on that and wait on uh, what's going to happen regarding subsidies for those tests. Now, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Nina Burns and Darrow Lachlan. Jennifer and Roisin um, will join us after the break as we discuss a bill that aims to remove religious influence from sex education. Stay with us. Here's a question that will be brought up in the Dáil tomorrow. Is it time we took religion out of sex education? It's in a bill by the Social Democrats. Their co-leader, Roshan Shortall, is still with me, as is Jennifer Carroll McNeil from Fine Gael. Uh, Roshan, I want to come to you first on this. Tell us about what's contained, what, what you felt was necessary uh, in order to bring this bill forward, why it needed to be done in your eyes. So this is a private member's bill sponsored by my colleague, Gary Gannon, and we're debating it in the Dáil tomorrow in private member's time. And the bill provides for standardised re relationships and sex education programme um, that would be taught in all publicly funded schools. And it's a programme that would be based on science the, and, and the facts of the situation and not based on any kind of religious considerations. So based on science and 
the best practice in healthcare because we don't have that at the moment. We have a variety of different programmes that are being taught. Some of them are found to be quite objectionable. Um, some of them that teach that marriage should be based on relationship between a man and a woman only, that raise questions about people's sexual orientation. And, you know, in, a, in this day and age, in this country, which is now a very diverse country, um, we should be teaching a programme that has equal respect for everybody. And that's not the case at present. And when this issue arose earlier in the year, you may recall the Catholic bishops produced a, a programme called Flourish. And there were a lot of serious concerns about some of the content in that. Um, and it was, you know, sending out very negative uh, what, messages. What, what sort of, what content in particular was, was causing so, worry or concern? It, it, it set a kind of hierarchy of sexual orientation and um, was very discriminatory against um, certain groups. And uh, certainly a lot of teachers and LGBT teachers found it very objectionable themselves. But many teachers found that it was exactly the wrong message to be giving young people. And it didn't respect people uh, from different sexual orientations. Okay. And, and you know, that's very fundamental where a programme has been taught on relationships and sex education. And if it discriminates against any sector, it's wrong. And, and it's sending out the wrong messages. And, you know, that's why at the time I drew attention to it in the doll, and the Minister for Education said that she would be uh, taking steps to ensure right. that a new programme would be produced by the Department of Education. And that hasn't happened okay, yet. Still waiting and that's that. why the, the, the Social Democrats have moved on that and have brought forward this bill. Okay. Um, Jennifer, what do you think of the way um, sex education is currently being taught in our schools? I've been objecting to it since June 2020, when I first raised it with the Minister, um, to deliver exactly this objective, fact-based, inclusive sex ed programme that we need. I think I've raised it in the Dáil 12 times now. Every time we talk about domestic, sexual, gender-based violence, I raise a relationship and sexual education programme as being the only way that we will really teach young people differently, with a different ethos, a different attitude to consent, personhood, boundaries, um, non-discrimination, inclusivity, real personhood. I I, I, we, I was contacted by SPAT teachers in Cork during the summer who highlighted to me offensive content, homophobic content that had been on the department's own website, the SPAT resources available to them. And, you know, I wrote to the minister about it. It has now been taken down. So this is something I have been working on since June 2020. I'm very pleased to, to see the bill, but I, you know, I have been engaged with the minister on this for some time. So, for example, Richard Bruton began this programme of work in 2018. They are going through a program of redeveloping. Years ago. They are going through a program of redeveloping the curriculum at junior cycle. They say to me that they will be finished that consultation in March, April next year, with a view to publication in the summer. In June 2020, I wrote to the minister saying, "This has been going on for some time. Can you assure me that this is going to be delivered for schools this September?" And then I asked September 2021. My question, irrespective of legislation, and it's great that this uh, this is being brought forward as well because you know this is something that I talk about so much. But what I really want to see is the programme. I want to see the junior cycle programme, the senior cycle programme. We're talking about a programme that needs to be age appropriate from the age of five so that young people are really, really being taught in an age appropriate way about personhood, okay. boundaries, appropriate yeah. education and doing it in a completely I inclusive way. I can see way. you're not happy with what's there. So will you be supporting this bill? 
what I've been supporting this 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 for for some for so long. You know, okay, do you think no it's going to receive cross party support? What are the chances of it actually going through? What are the chances of seeing well, that, you know, that legislative change? On a technical change? point, like Gary Deputy Gannon wrote to me about this on Monday to say, look, I've seen you've done all this work on it. I wanted to let you know about my bill. He's offered me speaking time. Thank you very much. In case I can't get any from the department, which is difficult in a private member's bill, because he knows I've been working on this for for, for so long. To my mind, legislation isn't going to fix. This can be done entirely without legislation. This oh. work is being done by doing the work that they're doing, except doing it faster, uh, in a more transparent way, and actually getting the programme out to teachers to provide the support to teachers, the training for teachers that they that they may need. But but this is a big issue for, for, for parents. This is a big issue for teachers. Last year at the, at the teachers' conferences, LGBTI teachers were saying, look, we don't feel comfortable necessarily. I have parents contacting me saying, you know, there's one man in my constituency who said, my brother is gay, and how can I let my son go to school and not be sure that he's going to be taught but material this is all that's absolutely... So long. Like you mentioned, Richard, Bruton bringing this up in 2018. Now you're talking about March of next year and you've raised it and you're within a government party on many occasions and, I, exactly, and it appears to be falling on deaf ears. Can, well, I hope it isn't. I mean, I get the PQ But, but you've just told back. us how the minister is dragging her heels on this. So I and on that basis, given that we're bringing forward a bill tomorrow, I would expect that you'd support it, Jennifer, and that your colleagues would as well. I will be speaking absolutely in favour of all of and the voting, principles in this bill. Well, what's the vote? I mean, I don't think the government is opposing your bill. You know, so what's there to vote against? We're talking about the same thing. So you will thing. be voting in favour of... You're supporting us then? The, okay. I'm supporting all of the principles in the bill. The vote, and, the government... And, and will you, you then allow government Roisin, time? You know, yeah. Will you well, allow government time for the other stages well, of the I don't bill get to be taken? Well, I don't get so to choose so that government can, time, as you know, so that we can, well, I don't get to choose government time. You can ask time. your colleagues to do it. I have asked my colleagues Because it's important that we implement this as soon as possible. You're right. You're right, and it's great that you are now bringing legislation on the back of the Flourish programme, which you know was, was talked about earlier this year. I have been talking about this for nearly two years now, so it's great that you're also talking about it. And I will be doing everything, okay. as I already have, to try to highlight this and to try to get the changes what that are needed. What some may say briefly, just in Catholic schools, like 90% of our schools, maybe it's a little less now, but around 90% are Catholic. And they would say that's the ethos within those schools. Parents choose to send the children to those schools, and therefore, the, the way religious, uh, the way sex education is taught, may be done through through the ethos of the church. But Claire, isn't that an incredible thing that almost ninety percent of our schools, of our primary schools, are Catholic schools? Like that says it all in relation to the lack of choice and the lack of progress that has been made over many okay. years now in relation to providing parents with the kind of choice that they want. There is a huge demand for multi-denominational schools. That is a completely unmet demand. We have, that's and the government should be acting. That's on my that. cue to go. I'm afraid that's it from us our program is available as a podcast on all major platforms our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning but from all the late team here thanks to my panel good night take care this is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend the Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts.
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.